Father God, we come before you today very cognizant of the fact that we cannot save ourselves. The world around us makes it very apparent, even this week, that humanity has no king and does what is right in our own eyes. Even as your people living amongst the world, our lives this week have taught us that if given over to ourselves, we act in ways that elevate us in our pride so that we might proclaim ourselves as Lord. And so we come before you today as your people, crying out that we do not want our flesh to reign over us. Please give us a heart that delights in your word, finds joy in your sovereignty over our lives, and a heart that clings to you in acknowledgement of our weaknesses, a heart that bows humbly before your grace. We know, Lord, that we are a people in desperate need of your wisdom this morning. For our lives are but a vapor, but your word stands for eternity. And so we ask, Lord, that you would feed us this morning with your truth and change our hearts and minds and lives into your image. We are so desperate for your work in our lives. We know that only you are able to make this change in our hearts. As the psalmist said, only you have the power to ransom us from the death that hangs over us. You alone are good. You alone are God. And it's because of this that we humbly approach you this morning with both thanksgiving and petition. You, Lord, are the one who gives life, and so we give you praise and thanks this morning for the new life of Bryn Harper Hess. We pray, Lord, that you would call her heart to yourself and make her your own even as she grows up. We pray that you would give Vic and Anna the wisdom and love that can only come from you to raise her in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We pray for health for them as they recover and rest, and we ask that you would bless their home with your spirit. Please help us as a church care for them well and support them as they raise their daughter in you. And so we rejoice with the Hess family in thanksgiving. We also rejoice with the Woodruff family this morning as Eli is recovering from a successful surgery this last week to remove a growth on his arm bone. While it was a tough surgery with complications, we are so thankful to you. And because of that, we are thankful to you that your hand of protection was on him and helped him through it all. Please give him rest and refreshment in your mercy and give the family rest and refreshment as they care for Eli and as he recuperates. For these situations, Lord, we rejoice. But this morning, we also come to you in lament and weep with those who weep. We pray this morning for those in the church who have chronic pain. Please grant them reprieve and healing, Lord, and please comfort them as they wait. We also especially pray for the Taylor family as Andy is helping his father in the hospice care. We pray for John, his father, that you would comfort him and draw him to yourself quickly and painlessly when it is your will to do so. We pray for Janet, his wife, that you would care for her and prepare her heart as they go through the process and as she and her children prepare to mourn. Please give great wisdom and resilience to Andy by your spirit as he cares for them well on your behalf. Lord, we thank you for being a God who is near to the brokenhearted and who gives us enjoyment and joy unending in the midst of trial and the toil of this life. We thank you for adopting us into a family so that we might turn to you as our Father and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Thank you for the many blessings we enjoy and help us to walk in thanksgiving and contentment in you today despite whatever our circumstances are. As we now enter your word, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us by your Spirit and we ask all of this in the power and the majesty and the authority of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. Why don't you all have a seat? And you can turn in your Bibles. Uh-oh, I think I finally did it, Seth. It's finally, it's finally broken. Yeah, it's broken. It's because you've been talking about making me a podium. That's why. It's full-on broken. I did it. I finally did it. Why don't you all turn to Psalm 1 in your Bibles, and I'm going to go with a backup here. This is Wyatt's. I know it's more holy anyway, so... (laughs) Psalm 1, big man with a little podium. (laughs) How many of you have snowboarded or skied in here? Anybody? All right. I wish I had known all of you the first and only time I ever went snowboarding because maybe you could have imparted some wisdom to me. Back in December of 2007, Kelly and I acquired some inexpensive snowboards and gear and decided that we wanted to learn how to snowboard. Some good friends of ours took us up to Mount Hood and offered to teach us how to do it. Doesn't she look great? I looked like a fetus, but she she looks as good then as she does now. I don't know how she does that, but now Kelly had ice skated, water skied, and wakeboarded, so she was pretty set from the word go. Uh, But being the jolly green giant myself and knowing the adage that the bigger they are, the harder they fall was true, I was a bit nervous to go down the mountain. The friends who took us were inherently skilled at it as well. And you know that people who are inherently skilled, oftentimes they're not the greatest teachers. And so when I asked them how to do it, they said something along the lines of, you get on your board and you point yourself down the mountain and you go. (laughs) So I tried that. Now, out of all the many things they didn't tell me, the most important was probably the fact that the runs down the mountain have different skill levels. Did you guys know this? And as I looked down the mountain to the left, I saw an entrance to a run that seemed, from that vantage point, the same as the entrance to the run on the far right. Both were gateways to skiing slopes. They both had trees lining them. They both had snow. They both had people going down them. But the problem is, is I had never been on the mountain before, And in winter, like that, I didn't know if the opening on the left was as easy and gentle as the one on the right. In fact, it was more so. But if I went on the opening on the far right, I figured out that I would be down something called a double black diamond. You guys ever heard of that before? (laughs) Now, being one to go against the flow, I looked to the left, I saw that there were tons of people going down that route, and I thought, I don't want to go that way. I want to go the hard way. First time down the mountain. So I start to go down, I start to go down this less crowded route, and friends, let me tell you from personal experience, it matters which way you go. It matters which way you go. Within minutes, I found myself moving down the mountain at a very fast pace, pride very much going before the fall. Something did not seem right, and so I started to get a bit nervous, and I still to this day will tell you I think it was the Holy Spirit Uh, especially because at this point it was whiteout conditions, and just as I turned my board to stop, the snow cleared for a moment, and I could see that if I had continued in that way, 
Within a few yards, I would have met destruction. I would have gone over a steep drop-off, one that a much more skilled snowboarder might have landed, but for me, it would have resulted in destruction. But unfortunately, my lack of skill in stopping also now meant that I found myself in deep powder. And yes, there is even deep powder for me. It was about up to here. And it took me forever to dig myself out and literally crawl myself over to a more packed run where I could get down the mountain. Now, by the time I got to the end of the run, Kelly was beside herself with worry, and I had officially sworn off any form of snow sport for the foreseeable future. <laughs> it matters which way you go. Now, friends, this is a powerful metaphor for life and eternity. For any of us in this room that have lived a few years know that life is made up of a series of situations that are cause and effect. And we point ourselves in a direction, we step through a doorway, so to speak, and then continue in that direction. But it matters where you start, and it matters which direction you are facing when you begin your journey. For two points, who are one degree off in direction at the beginning of a journey, will be farther and farther apart with every passing moment of time, eventually ending up in completely different spaces. It matters which way you go. It matters which way you choose and which way you follow. But unlike the mountain that had many options, what the Word of God tells us is that when it comes to life and eternity, it really is only between two ways, and the two ways could not be farther apart. And this is the message of the whole Bible. But perhaps no chapter of the Bible expresses this more clearly than the first psalm that we are looking at today. For in Psalm 1, it will perfectly describe that there is a way of the righteous and a way of the wicked. And they both, very much, uh, they both have very different endings. But they also describe the path of each and give simple yet profound characterizations of what those ways look like. Now, as an object lesson in and of itself, Psalm 1 is seen and known as a kind of gateway, an entranceway to the Psalms themselves. In some historical scrolls of the Psalms, Psalm 1 was actually printed on the outside of the scroll of Psalms, as if to note for the reader that to understand all of the Psalms inside, they would need to decide at the very beginning which way they wanted to go, whether they would submit to the wisdom of God and walk in the way of the righteous, or whether they would fight it and pursue the other way, the way of the wicked, that would disregard all the wisdom that the Psalms had to offer. And so Psalm 1, in and of itself, and through its content, declares the way that leads to wisdom and righteousness. The way that leads to wisdom and righteousness. That's our title for this morning. And in so doing, it acts as the entrance to the rest of the Psalms. But before we jump into Psalm 1, as I usually do at the beginning of a new book, let's spend a moment acquainting ourselves with the Psalms as a whole. So let's first look at an introduction to the Psalms. The Psalms are part of the last section of the Hebrew canon called the Ketuvim, or the writings. They fall into a category of scripture called the wisdom literature, along with Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Song of Songs. They're called this because in reading the literature, the reader gains the wisdom of God in practical matters. And so it's kind of a dumb question, but if you want to gain wisdom of the Lord, where should you go? You should go to the wisdom literature, right? You should go to Psalms. But they're more than just practical knowledge. In both their structure and their imagery, the Psalms are meant to evoke a powerful response in the reader. 
And really, as we'll see, in the singers, in the people that sing them. Now, we talk as a church about how emotions are not sovereign. They are not absolute truth. They may have some validity in that they are describing how you personally are interacting with the world around you, but they are never fully in sync with the absolute truth that only God can declare. Now, this might come off as declaring our emotions as bad or sinful, but that is not what I'm saying. That's not true. For emotions are God-given, and Jesus himself displays a full range of healthy emotions. But the key, friends, please hear me. This is core to our Christianity. The key with emotions is that we must bring them into submission to the sovereignty of God's word. If they become an authority in and of themselves, we have already turned to the way of the wicked. But we must bring them into submission to the sovereignty of God's word as he exercises his lordship over our lives and the world around us. The Psalms are a powerful help in this pursuit. They're powerful. For it's the intent of the Psalms to elicit emotion in us, but an emotion that is under the reign of Christ. They're to be read not as simple prose or even a common poem, but as heart-wrenching, heart-rending music that stirs our emotions in the direction of the Lord. In the Psalms, we will see emotions across the spectrum. We will find ourselves pierced to the heart in conviction of confession. We will find ourselves ascending to the height of praise and thanksgiving. Our spirits will be humbled to bow down before the majesty of God our King in the royal enthronement psalms. We will experience the great love of God's people as they declare their trust for God's sovereignty in their lives amidst persecution and struggle. We will feel anger and cry out for justice as we are reminded of the wickedness and faithlessness of man when we encounter the imprecatory psalms, psalms where the author calls for God's justice of the wicked. We will lament over the most difficult of human trials and sadness. And in all of it, we will be able to empathize with the author and find ourselves clinging to God with all of our being. From one Sunday to the next, as we go through these, you might have one Sunday that is nothing but joy, and then the next Sunday, nothing but lament. And we'll all feel a, a bit up and down as we go through the Psalms, but it's intended for that reason, because it brings our emotions into submission to God. And one of the reasons for this deep emotion is that the Psalms were the worship songs of the tabernacle and temple. Later, Psalms were written by the Jewish people as they returned from exile in Babylon to ascend to Mount Zion to worship once again at the restored temple. So you can only imagine the emotion that sits behind many of the words. In the Hebrew Bible, the title of the book is called Tehillim, which is taken from the root word Hallel, as in Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And this word, this name means praises. The word Psalmos in the Greek is the parallel. And in English, it's truly praises. We call it the Psalms from the Greek, but it's truly praises. That's what we're reading when we read Psalms. Even in those moments of lament or those moments of anger, they are praises. Now, it doesn't fully encompass all that is in the Psalms, though, because the first book that we will look at, we will see incredible lament and supplication to God. The Psalms are beautiful because they will require this full spectrum of emotion in their praise. But a second mark of the beauty of the Psalms is that they're intended to show us practically what it is to intimately worship Yahweh. They're meant not only to teach us about God as if from a distance, but intimately connect us to him. The 150 Psalms we have in our Bible were hand-selected by Jewish people over what some theologians believe to be a thousand-year period of worship. 
800 years is the authorship, 200 years of selection and editing. And these are most likely merely a fraction of the full number of the psalms used in the temple, and therefore, these 150 are the ones intended to bring us the closest to God in worship, and they most perfectly model what passionate worship of Yahweh has looked like over the history of his people. This historic nature of the psalms helps us see the ebb and flow of worship among God's people over time. In the psalms, we can find some of the earliest and some of the latest texts in the timeline of the Old Testament. In a way, the psalms sit then as the heart of the whole Old Testament and the people of God, sitting underneath all of the other events that happen. And they give us a glimpse into the story of God in the midst of his people. In the psalms, we see the foundation of temple worship, the praise of God for his deliverance of his people. But then we also see the lament of faithlessness and the excitement of returning from exile. It's fitting then that we as the church can use the Psalms as our songbook of praise as we exist in the people, of God, uh, people God has gathered and redeemed and made the temple of his glory. It's very similar to that outline of the history of the Jews. Because we are likewise a people in the exile of the world, awaiting his return, lamenting, and we will one day sing the Psalms of Ascent and praise as we walk fully towards his new Jerusalem. We do so, in a sense, every morning when we gather in worship amidst the temple of Jesus Christ. One day we will see the restored heaven and earth in which he reigns, and we too will sing Psalms of Ascent, in a sense. The Psalms held the people of God strong in worship of Yahweh no matter which point in their history they found themselves inhabiting. For the innate nature of the Psalms were not just to be used in private study or meditation, but in communal praise and worship of God. They are by nature meant to be declared by the whole of God's people, not just individual worshipers. And so friends, that is my prayer for our time in the Psalms, that it will unite us as a church in common worship and refresh our spirits in the Lord. For the whole of the Jewish people, the Psalms were extremely important, even on par with the law itself. The structure of the Psalms speaks to this. Just as the Torah, the law, was split into the five books of Moses, the Psalms are split into five books as well. In this series of sermons, we will only be covering the first book, which encapsulates Psalms 1 through 41. We'll cover the other books at later dates. But you can see these breaks as headings in your Bible, but they'll also be designated by the words, Amen and Amen after Psalms 41, 72, 89, and 106. The final book is concluded with the words, Hallelujah, which means, in the Hebrew, praise Yahweh. Every time you say hallelujah, you're saying praise Yahweh. Even though it was authored over a grand total of 800 years, the vast majority of the selected Psalms were attributed to David, and so this is why they're called the five books of David. The Torah was the five books of Moses, the Psalms, the five books of David. The five books of Moses taught God's people right conduct and right knowledge about God. The five books of David teach God's people right worship, right prayer, and the right way to praise. If you don't know what to pray, if you are not a person of prayer, then you need to become one because Christians are that. And if we feel like we don't know how to interact with God, the Psalms are going to be a great place for you to start. They're going to be a great place for you to use as backbone in your prayer. Read over the Psalms and pray out as they evoke whatever comes up by the Spirit. It's a great method of simply entering into communication with the Lord. 
But lastly, to understand the Psalms and the response they're to elicit in us, we need to understand the type of literature that they are. Unlike prose or narrative or the apocalyptic imagery of the prophets, the Psalms are poetry meant to be put to song. Prose can use more words to get meaning across, but poetry uses something called compression. Rather than many words, poetry uses minimal, illustrative language that gives us images which are meant to carry deep meaning. We are not to read them as if they are a police report, or as if they are a YouTube video, or as if they are a narrative account, or as if they're apocalyptic. They are meant to be read as poetry with great imagery. If you're a person like me, who is a little bit more literal, it's going to be a bit difficult, but we'll all do it together. Western poetry is identified by its rhyme and meter. The poetry of the Hebrews is a bit different. While it may have had a meter originally, most of those melodies have been lost. You'll find those melodies marked out in many of the headings of the Psalms. But the Psalms primarily use structure to declare that they're poetry. In some Psalms, there will be repeated refrains. In others, you will see bookends of parallel sentences. In others, the first letter of sections will act as an acrostic. But perhaps the most used throughout the Psalms is a tool called parallelism. Everybody say parallelism. I love teaching you new words. Somebody the other day threw out recapitulation to me. I was like, yes, <laughs> parallelism. And this is where there is a linking of successive lines of poetry that display and emphasize the similarities or contrast between them. Our first psalm this morning, the gateway to the psalms, is a perfect example of this. For in its structure, we find two common literary devices, and they will both be seen in parallel, parallelism. And we'll go through that in a moment. But let's begin with Psalm 1 and read our way through it. And because uh, it is uh, something to be read out loud, if you have an ESV, please read out loud with me. If you have something else, feel free to read it. Just recognize you may have a slightly different translation. But let all of us speak out Psalm 1 together as we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. Psalm 1 uses two common literary devices in Hebrew poetry. First is what is called a chiasm. Everybody say chiasm. In which the two sections build to an emphasis in the center and focus. It looks like this. If you want to write it down, you can. On the two bookends, you have the way of the righteous and the way of the perishing. And then they mirror each other in a sense, but they're contrasting. Verse 2 and verse 5 mirror and are contrasted, permanence in the Lord's law and people, and impermanence among God's people for the wicked. And then verses 3 and 4 are the enduring fruit tree and the impermanent chaff. You can see how they're, they're parallel, but also contrasting. This is chiasm. And this structure shows this. It's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. 
Now, the two contrasting individuals or groups of people here are those who are righteous and therefore blessed and happy in Yahweh, and those who are wicked and will therefore perish. Now, to be clear here, the word rendered blessed is often used in our society to characterize someone who is materially wealthy or comfortable. Hashtag blessed, right? You can laugh. It's weird to see me do that. I know, okay? Now, this is not what it exactly means. There is a bit of prosperity. There is a bit of happiness as well. But the meaning here is more in contrast to the one who is in per uh, perishing in their wickedness. In contrast to them, the one that is righteous is known by God and prosperous in the sense of being fruitful and founded in Yahweh and the purposes and will of Yahweh for their life. And so you can think of it as those who are in the way of Yahweh and those who are not. And the structure in this chiastic form and this parallelistic idea, this tool, helps us to see that there are three qualities that are noted for the two contrasting parties. These three qualities are the people surrounding them on the way, their use of God's word along the way, and the result of their way. The people surrounding them on the way, the use of God's word along the way, and the result of their way. In both the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, we will look at these three items. So let's look at them each. First, the way of the righteous. The way of the righteous. The psalmist begins with an introduction of the first type. Blessed is the man. The word man here is meant to encapsulate any person that is righteous, male or female. And notice that it is a designation from God. God is the one declaring that they are righteous, that they are blessed. It is not something a person chooses, so to speak. We'll get into that more in a minute. What is it that characterizes this righteous person? Well, here, first, it is the company they keep, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The author uses a contrast against the wicked to illustrate this. It's as if a person is walking along, just kind of minding their own business, doing their own thing, and they come across a group of people talking about something, planning something, looking at something. And so they join this group of people in their common pursuit. You've all seen this before. A crowd is gathering. You're walking slowly with the people. You stand with them. You may even sit down if it's going to take a while to look at it. But you join them in what they're focusing on. You stay a bit long. You find yourself sitting amongst them, participating with them. And what is it that this group has in common amongst themselves? Wickedness, sin, and scoffing. In other words, rebellion. The righteous person finds themselves not here, not amongst these same people where the wicked does. And rather than seeking the counsel of those who are seeking Yahweh, the wicked here are shown as the, they find counsel from those who will tickle their ears, tell them to do what is right in their own eyes. And the way of sin, if not checked, will move forward into scoffing at God as if to criticize him for his lordship. You can see the progression here. It's like, I kind of join, I really join, now I'm founded in it. There's a progression of wickedness. The way you go matters. The counsel you seek matters. The wisdom you receive matters. The things you listen to, watch, and are among matter. The word is clear. Bad company corrupts good character. Do not be misled. It matters who you go to for wisdom. 
and for counsel. It is a very human attribute to try and find a shortcut to wisdom through other people. Rather than pursuing wisdom through the Word of God ourselves, it is our natural bent to find people who we then put on pedestals of holiness, supposedly, so that we can follow them. We think, well, they're holy, so I don't have to do the work of seeking out God's wisdom for myself. I can simply follow them and listen to them and don't have to work in pursuing wisdom myself. As a pastor, I often run into this when they say, well, you say this, but this other person says this, and this other person says this. And my question is, is maybe we're all wrong. What do you think? You should check it out for yourself. Rather than pursuing wisdom for themselves, we tend to put these people in place and we follow them. But what if the way that we are following them is not the way of the righteous? Friends, to know wisdom is to know God and his word. And any one of us, myself included, any human, can quickly become prideful and find themselves turning a deaf ear to wisdom if it suits our desires to do so and submits to the mastery of our own opinions and emotions. This is why we should never be shocked, ever, when a person who was so righteous goes off the rails. Because all of us have that ability within us. And this is what should humble us and call us to constantly be in the word of God to correct ourselves. And we can know that we've found ourselves in this place if we suddenly avoid counsel that we know will point us to God's word and that we've gone to in the past and instead surround ourselves with counsel that will foolishly grant us our own desires. It's a really big flag that you are probably going your own way. And so the righteous person will not find themselves amongst nor gaining counsel from those who show by their lives that they're not submitted to God's wisdom. Instead, they will seek it out themselves and they will surround themselves with people who will do likewise. This is implied in verse 5 when it uses the contrasting statement to the wicked that they do not stand in the congregation of the righteous. They are not in the congregation of the righteous. Now this word, this, this congregation here, is the assembly of God's righteous people. In the New Testament, it is the church. People that assemble to stand under the lordship of Christ's word rightly preached And as part of their submission to his word, they also submit to those around them for the same reason. For God's people, by the empowerment of God's spirit, will seek out and desire and delight in his word. And this is what we see next. Because not only do we see the company they keep, but we see their use of the word. Notice verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Notice that the righteous, the blessed, are those who delight in the law of the Lord. The word delight is to find pleasure in it. It is not something the righteous read because they have to in order to please God. It is not something they read through clenched teeth because they think that if they check the box, they can manipulate God to their own purposes. And it is not something we read saying, well, I don't delight in certain portions of it. There are certain parts that are hard, and therefore I don't delight in them To the Christian, to the righteous person, it is delighting in all of it, even, and especially sometimes the hard parts that challenge us and question us and change us. It is something that the righteous find pleasure in because it is where wisdom is found, where joy is found, and where God is found. Now, the Apostle John said something similar in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. John sounds kind of legalistic there, doesn't he? Doesn't he sound legalistic? 
Well, this is John, guys. This is the apostle of love, that we keep his commandments. Guess what? His commandments to the one made righteous by Christ in his atoning death, his commandments are not burdensome. Following the commandments of Christ are not legalism or a burden to the Christian. It is the Christian's delight to obey Christ and walk in his way. It is the righteous person's delight to obey Christ and walk in his way. Now, if the Holy Spirit of Yahweh is the very author of the inspired word and the law of God, and that Holy Spirit dwells within God's people today, then it is the born-again Christian who will delight in the law of God. And what does it look like to delight in the law of God? Well, he says, he or she meditates day and night. The one walking in God's righteousness realizes the word is something that must be constantly on our hearts and minds and lips. The word meditate means to mutter to oneself. It has the connotation of a cow chewing its cud where it chews on it a bit, digests it, regurgitates it, chews on it again, digests it, regurgitates it, and there is this pondering, this sitting on it all day long. The sequence between verses 1 and 2 are intended to lead our minds back to the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today, his word, his law, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Notice the similar imagery, walking, standing, sitting. It is the kind of constant discussion and meditation among God's people that is to characterize them and contrast them to the world around them. Brothers and sisters, let's ask ourselves this morning, is this how we see the Word of God? Is it something that sets the course of your day as God's lordship of your life and then something you meditate on the rest of the day and something you return to the next day because you know deep in your heart you can't go 24 hours without sitting in God's wisdom? Is it something that permeates our discussion and interaction as believers? Does it permeate our small groups? Are we always prepared with something to share with our fellow Christians? Brothers and sisters, if you need help developing a devotional life, please come chat with us as your pastors or chat with other seasoned Christians in this church. We would all love to help you in developing your devotional life. For the one who has been redeemed by God exists and lives in God's word. They realize it is living water, life-giving bread. It is the commands of Christ that have authority over their life. They meditate day and night. They delight in the law of the Lord. Well, lastly, not only do we see the company they keep, but then also what they do with the law, but we see the result of the righteous way. The imagery that is presented is that of a strong, fruitful, refreshed tree who is eternal in its vitality. Not even its leaves wither. We are meant to pause and draw in our mind's eye what this tree looks like. Imagine the strongest tree you have ever seen, so strong that it could not wholly be moved except by the hand of God. And this strong tree that you are picturing, it is constantly restored and refreshed by the stream of life-giving water in which the roots of the tree find life. And this tree, it says, is productive and fruitful. It fulfills the wish of its creator for its purpose. It gives life and sustenance just as it receives it. It's not just taking in life, but it's producing it for others. There's cross-pollination, if you will. And its leaf, the indicator of its life, never dies. It doesn't even wither. 
Its leaves are green, indicating eternal life. There is a foundedness, a confidence, an assurance in its roots. And this comes not because of itself, but because its way, it says in verse 6, is the way known to the Lord, Yahweh, the giver of life and provider, and the one that sustains it. And because of this, its way is profitable, not just in a material way, but in a way that aligns with its purpose in the Lord. This imagery is meant to stand in stark contrast to the way that's next, the way of the wicked. The author makes this contrast abundantly clear in verse 4. The way of the wicked are not so. In other words, not like the, the righteous. The complete opposite. As the way of the righteous is life, the way of the wicked is death. As the way of the righteous is fruitful, the way of the wicked is barren and lifeless. As the way of the righteous finds delight in the law of God, the way of the wicked wants nothing to do with it and instead stands in rebellion against God and his word and his people. Friends, the greatest nightmare of the one that calls themselves the Lord's should be that they ever find themselves scoffing at or critical of God's word or trying to stand as editor over it. Our current society revels in this. We major in literary criticism and do everything we can to undo God's word or describe away its clear meaning because it doesn't fit into our contemporary sensibilities or progressive worldview. It is the wicked, not the righteous, who believes that the word must bend to our cultural constructs and belief. It is the wicked who scoffs at what the Bible calls good and what the Bible calls evil. It is the wicked that undoes it and calls evil good and good evil. It is the wicked who finds offense at the word of God instead of finding offense at the sin it calls out. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so the wicked find themselves uncomfortable among God's people pursuing the lordship of Christ in their lives. Maybe they have not fully aligned with the world, but they stand under the lordship of themselves. And so the wicked want a far easier gospel that assuages their guilt without call for repentance. The wicked wants a consumeristic product that makes them feel a therapeutic salve to their shame. The wicked will not find themselves among those who are pursuing the Lord's authority in their lives. And at the judgment, they will not find themselves standing, but rather bowing the knee in humiliation as the righteous justice of God is handed out. And notice next that in this psalm that uses parallelism and contrast as its primary tool, there is no discussion of the use of God's law. No explicit statement of how the wicked use the word, because in the life of the wicked, there is no use of God's law. They call themselves righteous, but do not stand on the righteousness of God's word. But notice that it implicitly states it. Notice the implicit statements. They are scoffers. You have to read something to scoff at it. The word means that they give lip in rebellion to God's law. Like a petulant child who rebels against their parents, they will stand in prideful authority over the word, not realizing doing so will only lead to destruction. And notice that they will not find themselves in the congregation of the people who desire to sit under the authority and lordship of God's word. Another piece of literature says it this way, wisdom literature. This is from Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And friends, this is why we come after you lovingly when you start to isolate and disappear from this congregation. The word 
tells us that if we love you, we will do so. The result of finding offense against the judgment of God's word is that they will have to face it in the end. But the result, the end, will be death. And that is the imagery that is contrasted with the tree. Founded, refreshed, stable, strong, fruitful, and eternal is the tree, but the wicked are the exact opposite. The author uses the imagery of chaff. This is the waste product of the processing of grain that is often seen in the Bible. In those days, they would harvest the stalks of wheat and then take them to the threshing floor and beat the wheat until the fruit of the kernels of wheat would separate from the coarse outer casings. And then to separate the two so that all that was left was the fruit of the grain, they would toss it into the air and the heavier kernels of wheat would fall to the ground and the husks and waste material was lighter and would be blown away. The imagery here is the exact opposite of the righteous. Where the righteous are founded and rooted, the wicked are blown and twisted with changing doctrine, bowing to the worldviews around them, driven and tossed in constant confusion by the many opinions that are not the word of God. Where the righteous are refreshed and at peace, the wicked are in constant angst, constant worry. Where the righteous are fruitful, the wicked are barren, producing no life in anyone but themselves. There is no discipleship to be found. They are constantly the recipient of care, but never giving care out, and at the same time criticizing people for not loving them enough. Interesting that the word in Hebrew for wind is ruach, which also means spirit. Wind often symbolizes the movement of the spirit in the Bible, and it's the spirit of God that will harden the wicked's heart so deeply that they will be driven away from God and his people, just as the spirit did to Pharaoh. And all of this will result only in perishing. And so now you can see why this was the intentional opening to the Psalms. Friends, if you're anything like me, going through this leaves you in a place of a bit of angst and unsurety. Is your heart beating a little bit as you read this, the righteous and the wicked? It's meant a bit to get you to feel a bit unsure. The gateway to wisdom and righteousness, it stands as a sentry asking, Will you read this as the righteous, or will you cast this wisdom aside as the wicked do? And the reader, you and I, are left with the question, so which am I? Am I righteous, or am I wicked? And perhaps you have that same question. Perhaps the reader's interest, like yours, would be piqued. And so they'd keep reading in the Psalms for a bit. Eventually, they would come to Psalm 14 that says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This was the same section of Scripture that's quoted in Paul in Romans 3, 9 through 12, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. Not one person stands on this way of righteousness. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Friends, the reason we read this, if we have any humility at all, and we start to get a little bit angsty as we say, I'm reading the way of the righteous and it is not my way. I stand in the way of the wicked far too often. I was born in the way of the wicked. When my heart is given to itself, it seeks the way of the wicked. 
The answer, dear friends, is that because of the sin of our first mother and father, all of us, every human that has been and will ever be born, innately falls into the category of the wicked. There is no good in us. Do not believe the empty, false lie of the humanistic gospel that there's good innately in the heart of man. It is decidedly contrary to Scripture. And it will take you in the way of the wicked. It's assured that without some remedy, our way is the way of wickedness and our end is perishing. Without some remedy. And this is what all of humanity, all of us, you and I, we deserve, rightly, justly. And so reading this should evoke that emotion, that understanding of our guilt and our shame. Great, Hans, I'm so thankful you brought us the Psalms. <laughs> but friends, it is the greatest news you can receive when you actually accept the truth that you stand on the way of the wicked. It's the most gracious, loving truth that you can receive. For friends, the longer we try to cling to the lies of self-esteem and the therapeutic gospel, that gosh darn it, you're good and people like you, the more you will drown in the knowledge of your own guilt and shame. For you can never swim fast enough to get to the surface of that idea. You will drown in it. And so many Christians have bought into that lie, and I watch them flounder because they're trying to find their way onto the path of the righteous by themselves. It cannot be done. It is grace to accept that you are pervasively depraved. It is gracious for God to have revealed that to us because it is then and only then, only then, that we find the way, that Jesus is the only way to righteousness. Jesus is the only way to righteousness. And because it is Jesus who walks on the way of the righteous, when he grabs us and he brings us to that way, we don't have to trust in ourselves. We don't have to work our way into it. We walk on the way with Christ. We stand firmly and solidly on the way with Christ. Praise God that he brought forth the remedy. Jesus is the only way to righteousness. The story of humanity is that we have collectively and individually rebelled against the law of God. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot manifest the way of righteousness ourselves. As you listen to me, you may have even been a bit confused because you thought to yourself, well, I do that part, but that part I don't do. Oh, I read my word sometimes, but sometimes I don't. And friends, that's what happens when we try to work our own way onto the way of righteousness. We've all scoffed at this authority of God. We've made ourselves lords in our own eyes. And in so doing, we've handed ourselves over to the enemy of God and accepted citizenship in the kingdom of darkness. There is no way for us to free ourselves. We are dead. We heard this truth in both of our readings this morning from the Psalms. No man can ransom himself out of death. It's impossible. You can be as wealthy as you want. You cannot ransom yourself. We heard it in Romans as well. All are unrighteous. 
Because we all fall short and we've all sinned against God, we've all voluntarily taken on the death stated as the consequence in the garden for accepting the lie of the enemy over the truth of God's word. Friends, you and I will die physically. But this is not just the promise of mortal death that God gave in the garden. This was a promise of spiritual death. You see, we are dead in sin and trespasses without Christ. In sin, our mothers conceived us and we were brought forth in iniquity. In other words, we were unable to see or know or accept God or his lordship or give him worship because we had so sullied the beauty of the image he had placed in us. He had placed worth and beauty in us to be his reflection and we said, no, thank you, I want to do it my own way. And so we needed someone to raise us from this death into eternal life. We needed someone to open our eyes to the truth. And we need someone to pave the way to reconciliation with God whom we have sinned against. All praise to God the Father that he sent his son to proclaim, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's the life to the death. He's the truth to the lie we've believed. He is the way of righteousness. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. There is no way to walk on that way except through Christ. Jesus became the very way to the Father because through his sacrificial death in our place, our sins are forgiven and removed because they were placed on him. And in exchange, not only is our sin forgiven, our shame dealt with, our guilt assuaged, but we are given the imputed righteousness of God so that we are now seen as righteous. We are taken from death, resuscitated to life, and placed on the way everlasting. And with this new heart that has been enlivened by the Spirit that gives us life, it draws us to the Father and adopts us into his people, and we are made new. And friends, this is not just a fake mask we put on of being nice or put-together people. It's an entire heart change from top to bottom. God has done it. God has made us blessed. God has called us blessed. God has given us joy. God has placed a delight in our hearts for his law. And friends, don't have any picture in your mind that the two ways are right next to each other. And if you stumble, you'll fall into the other and go back and fall into the other. For repentance is 180 degrees different. The way of wickedness is that way, and the way of righteousness is that way. And if Christ has placed you on the way of righteousness, you have no fear of falling into the way of the wicked. Because he has placed you there. And if you delight in his law, he will keep you there through that delight in the law. This is why the gospel according to Matthew shows Jesus for three chapters, chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew, declaring the law of God as the better Moses from the better Sinai in the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins with the Beatitudes, which encapsulates the law. He teaches delight in the law. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He teaches those who are his what it is to exist in this blessedness that he has gifted to them by grace. What it is to exist on the way Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman. Jesus ends that Sermon on the Mount with a parable about a wise man who builds his house on the rock of Christ's law and is able to be founded in the midst of anything. And he contrasts it with a foolish man who built his house on shifting sand, blown by the wind, so to speak. And that house fell, and great was its fall. 
Jesus is the only one righteous, the only one who truly delights in the law of the Lord because he perfectly fulfilled it. He is the walking parable of it. And he alone is the truly fruitful tree who is founded and eternal, who has grafted us into his midst. He alone is the gateway to wisdom and righteousness. And it is only through Christ that righteousness comes. In Matthew 7, 13 through 14, this is what Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. In other words, that's where we all go innately. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Friends, it's hard not just because of the trials of existing in a broken world, but it's hard because it is a constant breaking of our own heart to give ourselves over to his lordship, to constantly take our opinions, our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts, and submit them to him. It is a war between our flesh and his spirit. So what then? Do we walk forward in apathy, believing that since we call ourselves a Christian, we can continue to look like the wicked and yet have confidence we will be saved? God forbid. For if we are saved, then the righteousness of God has been given to us by his spirit. And the spirit of God now empowers us to walk forward in that righteousness so that we too are trees firmly planted in the living water of God's word. Friends, we are placed on the way, not by our own power, but by God's power. And this is what Paul says at the end of that same section that we read in uh, Romans 3 earlier. Would you go there with me? Do a really quick exegesis of Romans 3 here to match up and put a cap on this. Romans 3, starting in verse 21. Give me an amen when you get there. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as gift. In other words, friends, there is no way we can follow the law, follow the way of righteousness on our own power. There is no distinction. We all fall short. But we are justified... We are forgiven. We are made right by his grace as a gift. Nothing we've done through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a sacrificial offering by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Notice not our own. God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, the difference between a truly righteous person made righteous by God and a person who is wicked pretending to be righteous is where the power comes from. The power to be righteous in Christ comes from Christ, not from ourselves. If we do it ourselves, we will find ourselves walking the way of the wicked. He continues, Then what becomes of our boasting? In other words, what have we done? (laughs) There's none. It's excluded. By what kind of law then have have we gained this righteousness? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Awesome! I never have to do anything. Friends, that's an antinomian false gospel. It is a heresy. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, we can get rid of it. We're done with it. We don't need it. By no means. On the contrary, we, what does it say? Uphold the law. We live it out. We live it out. Friends, to be saved is not to say, okay, great, Jesus did it all for me, so then I don't have to walk the way of the righteous. Then you're not walking with Christ. But to try and earn it yourself, that's the other side. That's the other ditch on the other side, which says, well, I can earn righteousness myself. I'll just get in the word. I'll just go to church. I'll, I'll be a really good person. No, friends, the gospel is that none of that can be accomplished. Christ had to save us. Christ had to empower us. And now the evidence that we are his is that we walk in righteousness. Perfectly? No. But at war constantly with our flesh, striving in the righteousness of God. We do not cast aside the word of God, the law of God, as if it were bad. We don't stand in scoffing of it, saying, well, to call for obedience is legalism. We realize that without God's sovereign grace of salvation, we could never keep it in order to be found righteous. But once God sheds his grace on us by calling us to himself and giving us his spirit, it is without revocation. If he has given you eternal life and he has resurrected you, he will not undo it. It would be against himself. And so in that enlivened state, he has given you a delight in his word. You simply have to accept it by faith and walk in it. You have to step into it and taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to go to his word with expectation and prayer, asking the Lord to meet you in his word and cause the word to live in you. For friends, if you attempt to live a devotional life by your own power, you will fail, as I have many, many times. But if you ask the Lord to empower the way of the righteous, he will. If you depend upon Christ moment by moment, minute by minute, muttering on your, under your breath the word of God, Lord, I need you, he is faithful to hear us and to walk with us. And so, brothers and sisters, if you have a distaste for God's word, or if you find yourself having a distaste for God's people, or you find yourself driven and tossed by the opinions of the world, whether or not you have professed Christ or been baptized, I want to lovingly suggest to you that maybe your heart has not been regenerated by the work of Christ. Maybe you've done the steps attempting to seek out righteousness yourself, but you find yourself constantly at odds with God, his word, and his people. And so you might say rightly this morning, what do I do? Cry out to God to make you his own. Cry out to God. Pray daily that he would change your heart. Really, truly bring you to new life. And come humbly to him in that prayer with the desire to receive the repentance he has gifted you. And if he asks anything, humbly request that he would empower you to meet it. And then, dear brothers and sisters, if he has done that heart change in you, you will find that the word of God is not just words on a page. 
It is the very gateway to wisdom and righteousness. It is the very gateway to walking with Christ. You will find that being among God's people is not a burden, is not a strain. It is just naturally where you belong. You will know that praising God amongst his people, regardless of what drama is going on, that is where you are to be. His word and his people, it is for you the means by which your loving Savior exercises his lordship and mastery over you. It is the way of righteous, of the righteous. And it is the means by which you can intimately draw near to him, knowing that he has already captured you and made you his own. It is not a way to earn his love, but it is a way to know and experience his love, his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. It's already been made yours. Receive it by faith. And as you engage in his word, individually and collectively as a people, I pray that you will be able to declare, as David did in a later psalm, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you, Lord, you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Friends, I pray for every one of us in this room that we might be able to have those words on our lips in honesty and truth because we stand firm, not in the righteousness that we have earned on our own, not in the way of righteousness that we have hiked in our own power, but in the righteousness that Christ has purchased for us by his blood and has poured out into our hearts because of his power and his spirit. Let's walk in the way of the righteous as a church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It truly is living water to us, to our thirsty souls and our depraved hearts. Father, it is often confusing for us sitting in this world where we often are battling against our flesh and we have moments of victory and we experience the ups and downs of the life of the Christian. Lord, help us, help the people in this room and the people watching online to be able to know that when we depend upon you and we stand firm upon your righteousness, Lord, you will empower us to walk through all those ups and downs close to you knowing that we can stand firm in your victory, in your righteousness, in your truth. And Lord, help us to have growing and increasing victory as every day passes, as we stand in your word, as we stand amongst your people. Help us to see that change happening in our lives. Lord, I pray right now that for every truly saved person in this room, you would remind them of where they were when they first started with you and where you have brought them today. And yes, we all may have ups and downs, but the overall trajectory of the Christian is walking in that way of righteousness, growing in the knowledge of your word and your people. Lord, if there is conviction in anyone in here, even if they are a person who is baptized and has called themselves a believer for many years, Lord, I pray that you would lovingly, graciously give them that conviction and an acknowledgement that this is not failure, this is not the end, this is actually the moment at which you are meeting them and calling them to yourself begging them to accept what you have done by faith and to stop trying to just gain it on their own works of righteousness or niceness or kindness. Lord, draw them to yourself. Give them your comfort, 
Let them fall into your loving and caring arms so that you can empower their walk from here on out. Father God, we are nothing without you. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be a church not founded upon our own greatness, our own morality, our own ethics, but standing firmly upon the grace of your gospel. And Lord, let us be a people that then don't just simply dismiss your word as not needed, but realize it now becomes for us living water that we must walk in, that we must accept, that we must live in in order to be your righteous people. We pray all this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.